Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon. And please enjoy our Sunday message. Matthew chapter 16. It's one thing to hold a membership at a fitness center. It's a whole other thing to use it, right? Those two things are very, very different. Uh, it's wonderful to belong to a gym, but it's the potential, but the potential benefits of belonging to that gym really lay behind time invested and sweat and pain and commitment and submission to the gym. Otherwise, it's just a hollow membership. In a similar way, there are many people who have become saved members of God's household but who, for countless reasons, are not experiencing all of its familial blessings. We're members, but we're not experiencing all that it has to offer. There are people that are redeemed by Christ, but not abiding in Christ, as he invites us to do. They are converted to new life, but they are not committed in their whole life to him. We might say more simply that they are Christians, but they are not disciples in the fullest sense of the word. Last week in Matthew chapter 16, we saw Peter's grand confession, you may remember, as he declared by revelation of the Father that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we were reminded in that passage that to have eternal life, to be saved, one must believe in the person work of Jesus, that he is, like Peter confessed, the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. So we were told last week, we were, we were reminded what it looks like to be saved. Well, this week, as we come to the remaining part of Matthew 16, we're going to see what it means to follow him. Now that we're saved, what does it look like to come after him, to take his yoke upon our shoulders, what it costs and what it provides those who take up the call? It's one of the, another great illustration of one of the benefits of working through a text in order, what we call consecutive exposition, because you see, as Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, unfurls this narrative before us. Here's what it looks like to be saved, here's what is necessary, and here's what it looks like to make the most of that membership, to experience all the familial blessings that God has offered. Now what's clear when we come to this text, and it's clear quite quickly, is that consistently following Jesus means submitting to Jesus, to his plans and to his purposes. And this is difficult because oftentimes God's plans and purposes are offensive, and they are counterintuitive, and they are incompatible with the plans and purposes of people, even saved people. And oftentimes these two things butt up against one another. And this is where discipleship lives, is when these two things collide, the disciple, the one who follows Christ, submits to the plans and purposes of God. If we're going to make the most of our membership in the household of God, to experience all of its blessings and to bring God the most glory, it's going to require some sacrifice, some sweat, some pain, some submission to the membership itself. So let me read the text for us. It's not long, but chapter 16, verse 21 to 27, and then we will unpack it as we normally do. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Now, I want to organize our study around the two commands that are given by our Lord in this passage. The first being this, get behind me. He said that to Peter, right? Get behind me. And can we just acknowledge right off the bat, it's really hard to follow someone if you're not first behind them, right? So Jesus is going to call to us, get behind me. We cannot follow Jesus as we pretend to lead him. No, we must fall in rank behind the Lord. And this is what he calls for Peter, and by extension for us, to do as well. It's interesting, in the first verse of our text, in verse 21, Jesus lists a number of things, speaking to his disciples, that must happen. These things must take place. The Son of Man, a, a word, a phrase for himself that he loves to use, Jesus says the Son of Man must visit Jerusalem, must endure suffering, must be killed, must rise again. And these aren't only necessities, but we could say that they are divine necessities. God says these things must happen. And we say, why? Why do these things have to happen? Well, we know to fulfill prophecy, to redeem creation, to save sinners. Paul himself will later say, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we are most to be pitied, are we not? He must die for our sins, as Steve just highlighted for us at the table. These things must take place. We could say that this was God's plans and purposes for his Messiah. This was the plans and purposes written long ago. They must take place. But these plans and purposes, they offended. And they confused. And, and they were incompatible with the plans and purposes of Peter, weren't they? I mean, Peter had his own vision of what should take place. And in verse 22, Peter is rattled by this revelation. And he takes Jesus aside. And he says, God forbid it. This cannot happen. No way, Lord. This shall never happen to you. It's almost oxymoronic. He, he takes his Lord aside and rebukes him. He, he takes his master aside and tells him what's going to take place. He takes his teacher aside and tells him where he is mistaken, where he is confused. But well, you can see the confusion here. Here's God's plans and purposes for his Messiah. And they conflict with Peter's view of the plans and purposes for his Messiah. These two things cannot go together. He says, he's basically saying, how can you topple Rome, Jesus? Lift the oppression of the, of the Romans upon us. How can you do that? How can you establish your eternal government when you suffer and die? That doesn't sound very kingly to me. You must be mistaken, Jesus. Well, Jesus doesn't let that linger long. Verse 23, he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And there's that command, get behind me. 
See, while Peter had just declared, in verse 18, the passage we looked at last week, he had just declared the rock of Jesus' identity. Remember? You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now he becomes a stumbling block. He was a rock, and now he's a rock to trip over. How quickly things change. And I'm sure that some of us, hopefully not just me, can relate to Peter's offense here. He's attempted to place himself between Christ and the cross. That's why he's a stumbling block. Jesus says, I have to go. This is the plans and purposes of God. I have to go to the cross. And, and Peter's standing between him and the cross saying, no, you must not. Holding up his hand saying, this cannot come to pass. Because God's plans and purposes were incompatible and they were offensive and they were counterintuitive to Peter's plans and purposes. See, Jesus is quick to point out that, that such opposition to God's plans and purposes, no matter how well-meaning, and let's give Peter the benefit of the doubt, I think he was well-meaning here. I don't think there's any malice. And no matter how zealous, and if nothing else, Peter was zealous, wasn't he? He was excited. You know, no matter how zealous, and no matter if it's coming from one of Jesus' beloved followers, which was Peter, it doesn't matter. Such opposition is actually furthering the efforts of the adversary and not the Almighty. Get behind me, Satan. You're acting more like he who wants to oppose God's plans and purposes. You're supposed to be on my side, Peter. You're acting like a stumbling block to me. You're furthering, or you're furthering the work of the enemy, Satan himself, the adversary, and not God Almighty. Peter ultimately has his mind not on God's interests, but on man's interests. And again, I can relate to Peter. I don't want to be too hard on him here, because I can totally relate to him. I have a picture in my mind of how life should go, about how plans should unveil and pan out. And I'll be honest, when things get in the way of how I envision things happening, whether they are inconveniences or, or hiccups or surprises or blindsides or whatever else, if something gets in the way, I get upset. It bothers me because my plans and purposes are right before me and I see how they should work out. If it was up to me, if I was God, this is how it would happen. It bothers me when it doesn't go that way. And I know what you know about God. I know that he is sovereign. I know that he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God. I know that. You know that. I know that he'll never leave me nor forsake me. I know that he's bringing unity to all things under Christ, and it, that he's conforming me to the likeness of Christ, and sometimes even through trials and inconveniences. I know all of that. And yet, even with those things being true, when I'm met with the reality that God's plans and purposes don't always align with mine— it's offensive. It's confusing. And if I'm being honest, it's irritating. I can picture myself standing next to Peter in that moment. God forbid it, Lord. God forbid it. May it never be. And looking back at those times, I'm getting pretty close to rebuking my Lord. Pretty close to rebuking my master in those times. And maybe you can relate to that, that knee-jerk reaction within us. When things don't go the way they think, we think they should go. God, I, I thought he or she was the one. I thought that relationship was the one. What happened? That job would have been perfect for me, Lord. What, what are you doing here? That would have been ideal. We both know it, God. What are you thinking? God, why aren't my kids walking with you? I did everything possible, I think. I did, I did my best. Why are they not serving you like I want them to? Lord, why does it seem like you don't want me to have money? 
Everyone else seems to have money. It doesn't seem like you want me to. to I, would, I would serve you with that wealth. Why don't you give it to me? Why would you allow that sickness into my life, Lord? Why don't you heal my friend? Why would you take that person home so young? It doesn't make sense. My plans and purposes were very, very different than yours, God. Why did my spouse cheat or leave? Why do you not lift the dark cloud that seems to follow me wherever I go? I would serve you so much better if I wasn't so down all the time. Lift it, God. Ultimately, God, you're not operating like I expect, and you're not operating like I want you to. I want to be very clear. Questions and concerns like this that we bring to the Lord aren't necessarily sinful, and they aren't necessarily irreverent either. In fact, they can be worshipful declarations of our dependence on God when we use them right. Lord, I need you every hour. I need you. And we see this in the Psalms oftentimes. Some of the Psalms will start out saying, God, where are you? Where are you? My enemies are surrounding me. Life is not going well. And then the Psalm ends, but I'm going to trust you anyway. I'm going to trust you. However, these questions, things like this, when our plans and purposes don't align with God's plans and purposes, and we start asking those questions and having those objections, they can, if we're not careful, make us a stumbling block. They can make us a stumbling block. Thinking more in line with the adversary than with the Almighty. And these questions and objections, they can, they can be evidence. They can alert us at times that, that we've placed our plans and purposes above God's plans and purposes, that we're longing for him to submit to us rather than the other way around. And when that's so, we need to hear what Peter heard in this text. Get behind me. Get behind me. And the reason we need to hear that first command is that unless we get behind Jesus with a heart posture of submission to him to whom it is owed, unless we do that, submitting to his plans and purposes, we can't hear the second command in this text either, which is follow after me. Get behind me and then follow after me. We can't apply the second one if we don't first make a habit of applying the first one. And again, in our text, I just want to make very clear before we move much further in case it wasn't clear already. What Jesus is talking about in this passage is not how to be saved. It is how to live once we are saved. I want to make that very clear. If we start confusing those two realities, we will start questioning whether we are saved at all. We need to have these in order. How do we be saved? We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. Now that we're saved, how then shall we live? And that's what he's dealing with in this text. Okay, Peter and the disciples, remember who he's talking to in this text. It's Peter and his disciples. And with the exception of Judas, they already believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was just stated in the last passage. So I just want to make that very, very clear so as not to confuse those two realities. But verse 24 is such a, a concise but packed and convicting statement of what discipleship looks like. Then Jesus said to his disciples, turning from Peter to address them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here's what it looks like to really follow Jesus right here. To take his yoke upon your shoulders, committing yourself to serving him and becoming more like him. First, it involves self-denial, doesn't it? Must deny himself, self-denial. That means giving up ownership of our lives to him. 
If you've ever sold a house or a car, you know that you accept payment, you sign the necessary paperwork, and then you drop the keys off with someone else. You're submitting ownership to the new owner. And following Jesus means handing the keys of our life over to him who has bought us and signed the paperwork in his blood. It's yours. It's all yours. In fact, Paul will later remind us of this very weighty truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, speaking to believers, whom you have from God, and here it is, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's self-denial. You bought me, Lord. You saved me. You signed the contract. The deed is yours. I got to drop the keys of my life into your hands. That's self-denial. And this concept is completely foreign in our culture today. I don't need to tell you that. It's completely foreign in our culture today. A culture in which the self is the highest authority that there is. It's the highest authority to which we can appeal. It's higher than science and logic and the collective good. It's higher than, certainly higher than any sort of God if he exists at all. I determine what's right for me. I determine my morality. And if you impede upon what I've determined is right for me, I can call it violence. I feel unsafe because the self is the absolute highest authority in our culture. By nature, we are narcissistic self-worshippers, and our world has greenlit that rebellion and even encourages it. That's the waters in which we swim. And yet Jesus comes along here and he says, if you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, you must give up your right to your own cravings, to your own identity, to your own morality, to your own preferences. You got to lay it on the table. You got to lay it on the altar. In fact, later on, Paul will say exactly that in Romans chapter 12, won't he? He'll say, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And as I've said before, I've heard elsewhere, the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps climbing off the altar, right? So every day, we got to throw ourselves back up there. we got to hand over the keys every single day. Why? Because I am bent in on myself as a self-worshipper. I want the keys. I want control. I want to build my life along my plans and purposes. And Jesus says, that's counterintuitive and inconsistent, incompatible with following me. Following me is self-denial. And again, for fear of being repetitive, this is not an essential step towards salvation. This is a faithful step to, by those, taken by those who are saved. I just want to make it very clear again to be a disciple, to experience the benefits of the membership we've been given by grace through faith in Christ. This is an invitation that he puts before us. So following Jesus, we saw in that text, it's this self-denying reality. But there's another curious little phrase in there that no doubt many of you are familiar with at this time. It's, it's this cross-carrying idea. It's not only self-denying, it's, it's a cross-carrying experience to follow after Jesus. And this isn't symbolic, this idea of carrying a cross. It's not symbol, a symbol of inconvenience. Carry your cross. It's a little bit of an inconvenience. No, no. It's a, it's a symbol of total submission to him, and to the point of public death and, and deep shame. Remember, he's talking to his disciples in the first century. They would have been very familiar with Roman crucifixion. 
when the Romans came and, and occupied their area, they brought with them forms of execution and public shaming. And so when they saw people who had been sentenced to death in this way, they were often forced to carry at least part of their cross to the execution site as a form of, a, as a public symbol of, look, they are being made to submit to the yoke of Rome. Well, here Jesus isn't saying that he's making us pick up the cross. He's saying, pick it up yourself. It's to submit, come under the authority of Jesus. It's complete submission to him. In many ways, we could say that this is the extreme end of self-denial, right? We deny ourselves to the point of picking up a cross and following him. As we learn to follow Jesus, we are even turning over the keys to our reputations. The shame is involved with this. We're turning over the keys to the air in our lungs. Jesus, you own it all. It all belongs to him who, by the way, denied himself and picked up a cross for us, didn't he? He denied himself in that he condescended from the throne room of God to live in this. I mean, that's self-denial. All the rights of the, the second person of the Godhead, he poured out for our sake. And then not long after this conversation with the disciples, he would pick up his cross and he would follow to death, follow God's will to death. See, Jesus isn't asking us or inviting us to do anything that he himself has not or will not do. He is, is going to carry that cross. And again, in a world today controlled by and marked by self-preservation and, and self-esteem and self-celebration and self-promotion, Jesus calls for and would eventually model the very opposite of those things. Self-denial and cross-carrying. He says, follow me. Follow me in that. As one pastor long ago wrote, far be it from us to seek a crown of honor where our Lord found only a crown of thorns. We follow him in the way he would go. You say, that sounds kind of glum. Why would anyone follow? <laughs> you know, I'm saved. Why would I pick up my cross? Why would I deny myself and follow him if it means this pain? I mean, why would I actually go to the gym? I already have the membership. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Well, he makes a case in the verses that follow. Because so we start seeing that there's actually rewards for picking up our cross, denying ourselves, and, and following Jesus. Verses 25 and 26. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Herein lies a tragic reality that even many Christians fail to understand. See, those who work hard to preserve what they have, we live a life to preserve what we have, our, our reputation, our opinions, our, our comfort, our preferences. We, we do the exact opposite of denying ourselves. Those who live like that, here, here's the kicker, they still die. We still lose our life. And so we spend our life trying to curate a life that brings us comfort, and at the end of the day, it still comes to an end. This verb used here, to lose, in verse 25, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, could also be translated something like to ruin it or to waste it. In fact, in Matthew, he's used it that way before. In chapter 9, he's talking about wineskins, and he says, nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. They're spoiled. So Jesus is saying, there, there's a way in which we, we want to live our life on our own terms, my plans and preferences, but those who do that actually spoil their life. 
They don't get the life that God intends for his followers to enjoy. So either way, whether he's talking about spoiling the life that we try to hold on to so tightly, or whether we spend our whole life trying to curate the perfect life for ourselves and end up dying anyway, and saying, what was the point of that? Either way, what Jesus is saying is that all that concerns for man's interests as opposed to God's interests, it ultimately accounts for nothing at the end of the day. That's not the way to live life. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege to step into what seems like holy ground at the time when a brother or sister in Christ is so close to going to be with the Lord. They're in their last days, their last weeks. You talk to them, you pray with them, maybe you sing with them, share stories. I've had that opportunity from time to time. I've never, ever once heard someone, I don't anticipate ever hearing someone in that position ever say they wish they had committed less to the Lord. Man, I just wish I had not given him so much. I wish I had not denied myself that privilege. I wish I had not carried my cross in that way. I've never heard that before. It's always the opposite, if anything. Oh, I shouldn't have held back. I tried to make myself this beautiful life, and I held something back, and now I see that. I'm going to be with the Lord now. It's, it's going to be glorious, but at the same time, I could have given more. That's more the conversation that ha- is happening at that time. But in this text, not only is there a tragic reality in that as we try to hold on to our life, we end up losing it or spoiling it, but there's also a wonderful reality, if we flip it on its head, a wonderful, re- a wonderful reality. Those who are willing to, to get behind Christ, not try and stand in his way as a stumbling block, but deny themselves and pick up that cross and follow him no matter what, they find life as it was truly meant to be experienced, how God wants us to experience it, that life abundant. Now look back to the text with me. This may be a little technical detail, but I think it helps. If you look at verses 25 and 26, there's one word that's used here that's used four times, but unfortunately, in my translation, they translate it differently. It's the same word, but they translate it differently at different times. And it's the word that's translated life. And life actually means life. Okay, it can be translated soul, but in this context, what are we dealing with here? Denying our lives and carrying a cross toward death. That's what we're dealing with, physical life. So let me read it again and, and change the translation a little bit. This is what Jesus is saying. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Not soul, life. It's a rhetorical question. If you get everything, tiger by the tail, you've got the world on your string, you can do anything you want and you gain everything, what will it profit a man if he does all that and loses his life? Nothing, right? Second rhetorical question. Or what will a man give in exchange for his life, for that abundant life? What will he give in exchange for that? Anticipated answer, everything, everything. This is the wonderful paradox of Christianity. I know you're familiar with this. We think that we're being called to lay down our identity to Jesus, and we actually find we're gaining one much more precious. He says, lay down your time, I will redeem it. Lay down your opinions, I will clean them. Lay down everything, and I will give you so much. Lay down your life, and I will give you the life you really want. That's the paradox of Christianity. By faith, disciples lay down all that they are. They hand the keys over to everything in their life, and Jesus says, you just got everything better. That's the paradox. That's the promise of following Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus then provides further motivation in verse 27. 
For the Son of Man, again, his favorite term for himself, is going to come in the glory of his Father, future tense, with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. As would be the case for Jesus himself, so it is for those who get behind him and follow after him. Glory follows suffering. It was for Jesus. He would experience glory, but it went through the cross. And he says, follow after me. Pick up that cross. There is suffering. There is hardship. There's pain. There's sweat. There's tears. All that kind of stuff. But it's on its way to glory. And when he returns in glory, those who have followed him, who denied themselves and carried their cross, they will be rewarded for their faithfulness. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, Jesus, or Paul says exactly that. He says, the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is our status, brothers and sisters, heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him, suffering to glory. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Yes, carry the cross. He says, follow me. It does go through suffering, but this suffering is like nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed. And so in this text, again, it's a heavy text, but we have these two linked commands. Get behind me and follow after me. In fact, Jesus uses the same verb in both sec sections so as that we won't miss their connection. In verse 23, he says to Peter, get behind me. And then verse 24, to the disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, but it's the exact same word. So in other words, he's saying, Peter, get behind me. And if anyone wants to join him back there, here's what you can expect. Here's what it will look like. Here are the rewards that are to come. You become a member of God's household. You've taken out that membership. You know, but we're being invited to actually use it and to experience the benefits and the blessings therein. But it's going to take some time. It's going to take some sacrifice, some endurance, and maybe even some pain to follow after Jesus. But the God who can't lie, the God who has saved you, who has saved me, that God is telling you and I that it is very much worth it. Jesus, get behind me. Follow after me. Follow me through suffering, temporary suffering, to glory like you can't imagine. And in this text, at least, we could put together a bit of a biblical theology on rewards, and it is a wonderful study. But in this text, he doesn't elaborate. There's rewards. I will reward. And let's just be satisfied in knowing that a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the God who is good and gracious and wonderful and holy, when he rewards us, it will be pretty good. They will be good rewards. He says, that's what you get when you suffer for a little bit, when you follow me through suffering to glory. Don't be a stumbling block when you find God's plans and purposes. Don't align with your own. When you find those two things butting up against each other, don't try to put yourself between God and his plans and purposes. Submit to him. Get behind him. Deny yourself. Pick up that cross and follow after him. Have you ever seen children play follow the leader on a playground or something? In a little train around going under things, under slides, down slides, all that kind of stuff. Well, really in this text, I feel like we're being invited here to play a high-stakes game of follow the messianic leader. So follow after me. Come after me. Do what I do. Follow after me in the way it goes. It's, it'll be tough at times. You can deny yourself. Give me the keys. Besides, the keys are better in my hands than in yours anyway. It's going to be tough, but it does go to glory. Follow this messianic 
leader. And so as we close, just some, some things that might help us take practical steps this week toward faithful discipleship. And for some of us, I realize that you've been following the Lord for decades and decades, and you are a faithful follower of Jesus. And some of you, you're brand new. Maybe you just were saved recently, and so this discipleship thing is all new to you. No matter where we're at, though, I think we can agree that we can always improve. We can always take another step toward following him with greater fidelity, right? We can always take those steps. And so I pray that these these suggestions will hit all of us in the same way. Okay, so how do we follow or better follow this messianic leader as Jesus beckons us? Get behind me. Follow after me. Well, four, four things for us to consider as we close. First, I challenge you this week to identify one thing in your life that you know that God is calling you to do, but you're not yet doing. One thing. And again, if you're listening to this and you've never actually trusted Christ, that is the one thing that he's calling you to do. And we're pleading with you, trust Jesus for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, the salvation of your for your soul, for eternal life. Believe in him. But for the rest of us, what are some of those things that I know God is calling me to do, but to this point I've yet taken that step? Maybe it's baptism. Maybe you've believed in Jesus and you've been walking with him for decades but never been baptized. That might be that step. God calls us to do that, to identify with his body. Maybe that's the step you need to take. Maybe it's to start giving to the church. That's a sacrificial thing to do. Maybe it's to share the gospel. To share the gospel with someone, that's intimidating, isn't it? But we're called to. We're invited to participate in that work, to share the gospel. Maybe even now you're thinking, there's this one person in my life that I just feel like God has put in my life for this reason. I haven't done it yet. Maybe that's the step that you need to take. Maybe you need to repent of a specific sin in your life. There's been something there that is just wrapping its tentacles around your heart. And you have not yet taken it to the Lord and said, Lord, I agree with you that your plans and purposes for me do not include this sin. I need to lay it before you and confess it to you and ask for your forgiveness and repent of it. Maybe that's what you need to do this week. Or maybe you need to start serving in the church in a specific way. Maybe that's what you need to start doing. We're told in the Bible that we are all one body as believers and individual members of that body. But sometimes you hit your funny bone, the limb goes numb. Maybe you've been part of the church, but you've been a numb limb, a numb nose. You know, you're, you've been asleep. You have not been contributing and serving in the way the Lord has designed you to serve a body of Christ. We need you, brother and sister. We need you to serve. You have been designed exactly for that. Now, whatever the case may be, I challenge you this week to identify one thing that you know God is calling you to do, but you have not yet taken that step. Whatever it is. And secondly, Admit that you're being a stumbling block in disobedience. That's the next step. That you're being a stumbling block, that you're standing with Peter between God and God's plans and purposes. He's called you to something. You have not yet done it. You're a stumbling block. You're standing there, and Jesus is saying, like he's saying to Peter, like he's saying to me in ways, saying, get behind me. Get behind me. Just admit what it is. So identify that one thing, and then admit that you're being a stumbling block in that area. And then third, ask God for help to get behind him and follow after him. And we don't want to ever do things on our own power, right? We never want to do that, to, to white-knuckle our way towards service, towards sanctification, depending on our own energies and wits. We don't want to do that. So whenever we come to something like this and we say, Lord, there, here's something you're bringing to my heart that I, I need to lay before you. I need to take this step. I admit, I'm a stumbling block. I'm getting in your way. God, I'm going to need your help to get behind your son and follow after him 
is not something that comes naturally to me. I like to worship myself. I want to curate for myself a life that is comfortable and a life that is, is self-serving. That is my default mode. I need your help to kill that and to get behind Jesus and follow after him. So identify, admit, ask God for help, and then finally act on it. You kind of knew that was coming. Act on it, right? Deny yourself. Deny your self-consciousness. Deny your pride. Deny your opinions. Deny your sensibilities, your fear. Whatever the case is that is keeping you from taking that step, deny yourself. Give the keys over to God. He's called you to this. Give him the keys. Pick up that cross, trusting in the promises of God, and follow the messianic leader through suffering, through embarrassment, through inconvenience, through fear, whatever is standing in your way, through it all, toward obedience, toward life abundance, toward rewards, and ultimately toward glory. Identify one thing. Admit that you're being like Peter. <laughs> that stumbling block. Ask God for help and act on the conviction. Pick up that cross and follow after him. Get behind him, follow after him. Augustine, you may have heard of him before, a fourth century church father. He once wrote this. A man who could be seen was not to be followed. God was to be followed, but he couldn't be seen. So in order to present human beings, both with one who could be seen by human beings and with one whom human beings might properly follow, God became a human being. So we could see him and we could follow after him. And that same person, the Lord Jesus Christ, he invites us to follow him on the road he himself walked. It's a tough road at times, but a joyful road and one that ultimately leads to glory. So let's ask the Lord to help us do that this week, to whatever stage of the following Jesus we are at, to deny ourselves just a little bit more by his power, to take up that cross, to give him the keys that he's paid for. He signed the deed. He owns us. Give him what he's due. Let's pray together. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.